Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where this week I'll be talking to the world famous Sadhguru. Sasha will give us a roundup of the week's news and I have Netitines and Giuseppe Castellanetta talking about Luxilux and Miss Tourism for Luxembourg. So my first guest is Sadhguru, a yogi, mystic, best-selling author, international speaker and now one of the world's most influential voices on ecology thanks to his Save Soil campaign, the world's largest people's movement. He was conferred Padma Vibhushan, India's highest annual civilian award, accorded for exceptional and distinguished service. And Sadhguru recently finished 30,000 kilometres across 27 nations spanning 100 days as a lone motorcyclist across Europe, Central Asia, the Middle East and India. And through this, he hopes to have ignited people's concern for soil and spur action in governments around the world to implement soil revitalization. Sadhguru, it's a delight to have you with us here in Luxembourg. Namaskar, I'm wonderful talking to you, Lisa. <laughs> I don't think you pass through Luxembourg on your motorbike. Oh, it was on the plan, but uh, <laughs> things changed a couple of times. The plans changed and uh, we uh, came very close, but we missed Luxembourg. I'm sorry. <laughs> this time, this time, but I'm sure you you can traverse our, our little country another time. Now, I know all of this endeavour has been in aid of the Save Soil movement. So can you tell us about soil, why it's dying around the world? Uh, I will try to make it as simple as possible. The simple thing is this. In our eagerness to produce food, we, uh, you know, at one time we were hunters and gatherers, then we shifted to agriculture because we wanted certain certainty of our nourishment. When we are hunters and gatherers, we don't know when food will come, when it will not come. So we went into agriculture. And uh, we went into agriculture and that is when our populations multiplied. In the last century, we have multiplied nearly four times over. That is, in the beginning of uh, 20th century, we were 1.6 billion people. Now we are inching towards 8 billion people, which is more than four times. So how to provide food for all these people? So we got into a certain mode. In this mode, what we forgot was it is not we who produce food. It is the soil which produces food. We forgot this fundamental uh, reality and this, we started exploiting the soil. We started treating soil as a resource. Soil is not a resource. It is a source of our life. Even in terms of evolution, it is only because of what happens in the first 15 to 18 inches of soil, these trillions or zillions of microbes and microbial activity which produces life on this planet, whether it's a plant or an animal or a human being, everything comes from this. We forgot about this and we were so busy wanting to feed ourselves, we forgot to feed the microbes in the sense the microbial life can only eat organic matter or organic content in the soil. Right now, we created farms where the source of organic content, which is either plant life or animal life, is simply absent because machines are working on the field and there are no plants, no trees, no animals. So there is no organic content going back. For this, we found an alternative of using chemical fertilizers, that is feeding the plants directly with nitrogen, ammonia, whatever else it needs. Well, that is okay. That is like we taking a vitamin pill if something is lacking in our nourishment, but it is not a substitute for food. To put it very, very simply, that's all it is. The microorganisms don't have food to eat. So on an average, according to UNFAO, 27,000 species of organisms are going extinct per year. It's if we go horrible at this rate, to think about that. Yeah. If we go at this rate, right now this slide which is going down, in another 25 to 40 years, it's expected it will go into a tumble. Once it goes into a tumble, there is nothing we can do. Right now, it's in a slide. We can arrest the slide and push it back. It's very much possible to do this. With, uh, with a focused and determined effort, it doesn't take any great technology to do this, nor does it take enormous amount of financial outlays. 
what is needed is facing the right direction and a relentless commitment towards this in six to eight years' time across the world. All agricultural soils can be turned around if the necessary incentive-based policy changes are made. So save soil movement, this 30,000 kilometers, all this stuff that you said, is mainly in this direction because soil was not even in the narrative just four months ago, as you know. Mm -hmm. Even in main conventions and conferences where the whole world came to meet about global warming and uh, climate change and such issues, the word soil was not mentioned. But right now it is summer, I hear it's pretty hot in uh, Europe, mm -hmm. hotter than India, that's what I'm hearing. Well, it is <laughs> so, pretty hot, yeah. <laughs> UK is 40 degrees, means India is right now 31, 32 Ooh. degrees in most places. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, if you, if you go out and touch bare soil, plowed soil, which is exposed to sun, just with your hand, you don't need any instruments to do this. What is the temperature? Where grass is growing, what is the temperature? Under thick bushes, what is the temperature? Under large trees, what is the temperature? If you just check it just with your hand, you will see there is a minimum of 8 to 12 degrees centigrade difference. This is global warming. This is climate change. Somehow, we've been avoiding this. So the Safe Soil Movement was to bring the focus. Major part of climate change and global warming is mainly because of agriculture. 90% of the deforestation on the planet has happened because of agriculture. It is not agriculture is the crime. The way we are doing agriculture, thinking that without the participation of the soil, we can do agriculture. This is a fanciful idea. And we think we can run our economy without ecology. This is like you have the foundation of ecology. It's upon that our life is happening. Now we want to build economy. So we start pulling out the foundation and build a superstructure. How long will this superstructure stay? It is going to come down on our heads. So ecology is the foundation, economy is the superstructure. We should never forget it. It's not the other way around because there are a whole lot of people who are continuously arguing. What about the economy? What about... The there will be no economy if there is no food to eat. Mm -hmm. You speak continually about the 3 to 6% requirement for organic soil content. Where does this figure for 3 to 6% of organic soil content come from? See, we have been working with the Indian farmers, uh, hundreds and thousands of farmers. 27 years we've manifested this on the ground. If minimum 3% happens, right now in India, the average is 0.68%. When we raised it to 3%, we found that the, the soil's ability to hold water is almost doubled, 100% increase in its ability to hold humidity and moisture. Once the soil holds moisture, we see an enormous amount of microbial activity, the number of earthworms that come back into that soil, all these things are practically manifested. If we raise it to 8 to 10%, we find the irrigation requirement of the soil uh, irrigation requirement for any given crop comes down to 30% of what is right now being used. So these things are established on the farm. It is always we are looking at universities and laboratory to produce results for you. But I'm a, everyone must understand if we want to change the biodiversity, change the quality of the soil or bring back the quality of the soil on the agricultural soils. It is the farmer who will do it, not academics and scientists. They can give guidance, but it has to be done by the farmers. So this is done by the farmers. The agronomy, uh, the International Agronomy Conference, which happened, every one of them agree, minimum 3% is needed to call soil as soil. If it comes below that, it starts becoming sand. If it's below 1%, UN agencies have clearly said, below 1% is desertification. Yeah. What does organic soil content actually mean? See, uh, right now, uh, this question may be coming because the whole focus has been on soil carbon. But this is, we're looking at this in terms of only carbon sequestration. See, that is one aspect of it. The most important thing is the microorganisms which are living organic content in the soil needs dead organic content to feed upon. That is their food. Mm -hmm. When we say soil organic matter, we are talking about providing full-scale meals for the microbes. 
Rest of it is not our business because today, top scientists in the soil scientists in the world are admitting that they do not even know 1% of the organisms that are present in the soil. When we know less than 1%, we can't claim we have some expertise. I'm saying life is manufactured by nature, not by you and me. So putting it back is most important. First thing is put it back, let the soil be alive because we clearly understand that this is the foundation of our life. Just to put this into context, because right now everybody's talking about air pollution, water pollution, and these kind of things. For example, air. See, before this process that we refer to as photosynthesis today, before this phenomena started, photosynthesis, that means the green leaf learns to sequester carbon and make organic nutrients for the organisms, and the organisms in turn exchange nutrients with the plants. This whole way of using the solar, perpetual solar energy to manufacture life, which we refer to as photosynthesis, before that came, the average oxygen content in this atmosphere, in Earth's atmosphere, was just a shade over 1%. Today it is 21%. That is why you and me are alive. You may be breathing in Luxembourg, I may be breathing in Tennessee, but the atmospheric oxygen is around 21%. In spite of all the carbon dioxide, monoxide we have put in the atmosphere, still it is around 21%. Because of that, life evolved into more complex forms. So the very evolution is dependent on this. But what have we done? In the last thousand years, we have removed 85% of the photosynthesis or the oxygen manufacturing plant on the planet. What is our plan really? Well, you touch on so many points in an answer. I'm thinking then that the organic soil content means that we should be trying to encourage the microbes to live in the, the top layers of the soil, which I think many people are aware of. But because many people don't grow their own food anymore, we don't touch the soil anymore. And we've seen that even with the war in Ukraine, which is one of the breadbaskets of Europe, that the bread, the food, is not coming to us here. What's your view on food being shipped and flown and driven around the world, the global food economy? See, this outsourcing of uh, uh, food the wealthy nations outsourcing their food from one nation. If their soil goes bad, they'll go to another nation and another nation is a destructive process. Most of the food that we need should grow where people are. Wherever people are, food should grow there. A few exotic things you want to eat, you can get spices from India, something else from Indonesia, something else from China, that is up to you. But most of the basic food should grow wherever people are. If food does not grow where people are, inevitably wars will happen. You know, this is, there are many, many uh, causes for a war. There are many ways, for many reasons, people fight wars. But food wars will be the worst because in Africa, for example, in the last 50 years, 30 wars have happened. Out of this, 27 wars happened for fertile land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be worldwide. Right now, you can also see Ukraine like that because your bread is coming from there. You will have to fight it. Yeah. Now, earlier this year, you spoke at COP15 and you addressed all of the very famous faces present there and uh, the great thinkers. And your message had three phases, inspiration, incentive and disincentive. So is this a strategy that you've seen work before, those three pillars, inspiration, incentive, disincentive? See, inspiration is needed because otherwise human beings won't move. They settle into whatever is uh, status quo. They try to settle into it. Some inspiration is needed to get them gassed up for the next step. But without an incentive, without a booty hanging out there, people won't make changes in their economic activity, which we are referring to agriculture right now. Agriculture may be food production, but for the farmer, it's his economic activity. So he needs an incentive. And above all, the farm economy in the world is so fragile that uh, if you as much as shake it a little bit, it'll collapse. This is not just in the developing countries or in the poorer nations. For example, in United States, 50% of the farmers have not seen one dollar of profit in the last 12 years. And the highest number of suicides all across the world, among all given professions, is in the farming community. Over 
half a million farmers across the world have committed suicide in 25 years' time. So this is because the economy is so fragile. So you cannot change that economy without strong incentives. Mm -hmm. And this incentive should come after 5-10 years, still some people don't want to make a change. There must be a disincentive some kind of tax or whatever exemptions others are getting, they should not get, something must be there. But this is not the time to talk about disincentives, this is a time for inspiration and incentive. And when it goes about inspiring somebody, you're a genius at this and you have a whole global tribe following you, how do you go about trying to change somebody's mind, a policymaker, for example? See, I've been talking about, for example, the, this ecology is not my main part of the work, as <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So last 30 years, I've been talking about soil and the need as to how soil needs to be revived. Otherwise, there will be a disaster. Whenever I speak to many people, people in responsible positions, agriculture ministries, ministers, bureaucrats, some heads of state, everybody says, Sadhguru, what you're saying is great. This is very important, this is really fantastic that you're bringing this into focus, and they sleep on it. Mm-hmm. So, 30 years I've seen continuously that soil degeneration has been a good pillow to sleep on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, we've been active on the ground, it's a large-scale project. We are working over 83,000 square kilometers of land, 5.2 million farmers, but still that's a drop in the ocean when you think of producing food for 8 billion people. So I see that unless there is a global change, because biodiversity or microbial activity is a global phenomenon, you cannot conduct it within the national boundaries of a given nation. This whole thing that planet is like a cake that all of us can cut and take uh, one piece and say, this is my piece. (laughs) You, Lisa, (laughs) you cut a very small piece. You're on diet, Luxembourg. (laughs) 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 We may divide the world for administrative and political purposes, but we should never believe that national borders are absolute. They are not. Because that's not how life functions. Life is a phenomena which is happening across the globe. It's a global phenomena. You can't cut it down into nations and do. This is why Safe Soil Movement to change the policy across the world. Otherwise, in a pointed way, we could very easily do it in India. But that is not the solution because when the collapse of microbial life begins to happen, when the biodiversity starts collapsing, it will not collapse in one place. It will happen everywhere. This is something most people have missed. They think if I keep my kitchen garden really nice, everything is fine with me. It's not like that. I may keep my kitchen garden very rich, but globally, if certain species start dying, then everything will collapse. It is not going to be geolocal. It is going to be global. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is uh, why global policy is very needed. I also just wanted to kind of wrap up the agriculture section by asking you if you feel more people should be vegetarian. A lot of our fields are used <laughs> right now, for animals. <laughs> right now for the safe soil movement, I need all kinds of people. People who eat uh, vegetables, <laughs> people who eat fruits, people who eat trees, people who eat meat. I need all of them. So right now, I don't want to divide the humanity on that basis. Yes, it has some relevance, what you're saying, but uh, that's not going to happen right away. So I'm saying it's better we integrate uh, right now animal farms and other uh, vegetation farms are separate. These two needs to come together. Animals and growing of crops must happen together. That's how it used to be always. We separated this so there is no food for the microbes, there is no bio, uh, you know, organic matter, because there are only two sources of organic matter, Lisa, in whatever way you can make your people understand, all the people who listen to you, make them understand that there are only two sources of organic matter on this planet and in the known universe. This is plant life and animal life. Wherever you want to grow plants or crops, there must be animals also. You, right now, our problem is animal farms are separate, plant life is separate. This is not going to work. They have to be together. Yeah, well, I will try my very best to get... Oh, I can hear it. <laughs> I will try my very best to get that message across. I wanted to move on to other parts of your life. 
For instance, education. I would love to know your views on education because your own background is fascinating and rather unique. And from what I've read, you've raised your daughter in quite a unique way too. Uh, you don't talk about my education, there's nothing much to say about it. <laughs> well, it made you who you are. <laughs> See, uh, what the biggest mistake that we have made uh, in the process of creating human societies is the way we have structured education. That is, we have made people misunderstand that memory is intelligence. Right now, as artificial intelligence grows, maybe slowly people are beginning to understand. You know, I was in an international conference where all kinds of academics, scientists, professors were all there. And uh, I was invited and this uh, conference is about artificial intelligence. I said, why am I being invited to artificial intelligence? <laughs> I thought I am natural. <laughs> uh, they said, no, Sadhguru, uh, in another 10 years, what do we do? Because we won't have anything to do. I said, isn't that fantastic? All of you guys have been suffering. Your work, <laughs> five days of the week you suffer, two days you think it's your vacation and you enjoy yourself or whatever else you do. But... Isn't it great if none of us have anything to do? That is when human potential and human genius can really open up. Right now, human potential and genius is super wasted, just trying to earn a living. Everybody asks, <laughs> even people ask me, Sadhguru, what do you do for a living? I said, what do I do? I breathe. <laughs> I breathe and make sure my heart beats and everything else, and that's how I do for a living. No, no, they're asking, is your focus on your survival, your entire life is about earning a living. This is the most tragic way for a human being to live, because human intelligence cannot be enslaved to earning a living. So this living also, we complicate it more and more and more in such a way, I meet the billionaires of the world, in various conferences and stuff, I see they're also still in their survival mode. Mm -hmm. Even if they have 50 billion, 100 billion dollars, they're still in survival mode because there is one more man right ahead of them or right behind them breathing down their neck. Sadhguru, I have so many more questions that I would love to ask you about your spiritual journey and your fame across the world, but I know that you have to move on to another interview now. You, so you must come to India, Lisa, then we will sit and talk. I would love that. And you're, you have an Do open that. door welcome <laughs> to Luxembourg from more than just me. I know you have many, many fans here in Luxembourg too. Thank you for all the work Thank and the you commitment you that. give us. And the same for you. Anytime you want, please come to India, spend some time there. It'll be wonderful. It's a very unique space what we created there. I Thank would you. absolutely love to. And I was talking to Eddie about that just before our call. Thank you very much, Sadhguru. Thank you. Thank you. Namaskaram, Lisa. Namaskaram. Namaskaram. The Lisa Burke Show. Welcome back, everyone. And I hope you enjoyed that interview I had with Sadhguru. It was an interview I did uh, last night, Thursday night, in fact. And here I am on Friday morning with Sasha to have a look back at the week's news. Sasha, I know you weren't present when I interviewed Sadhguru, but um, it was he is quite a figurehead. And uh, our first story, as we reflect back on the week's news, is going to touch on the European heat wave, which he mentioned because he said the, the temperatures in Europe at the moment are higher than those in India. And of course, he's also concerned about climate change with the soil crisis and everything. So tell us about the heat wave in Europe and, and the stories that caught your attention this week. Well, that was, it's extraordinary that uh, Europe is hotter than India. I didn't know that. No, nor did I. Uh, I couldn't believe it, actually. It did feel very, very hot this yeah. week. I know we spoke about climate change um, and, and the heat wave the week before. But of course, this week we saw um, Germany had the hottest day ever recorded, as did the UK. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were extraordinary videos of there was a, a, a wildfire just outside London, yeah. which I think, you know, is again something... We've never, never seen, seen before. No, <laughs> no. Uh, even Ireland, I understand, Ireland was really was hot. Oh, I have such a funny. Uh, my old best friend from primary school. I saw a post she put on Facebook, and uh, it was of clouds, and she said, "Well, that was a nice summer this morning." <laughs> but it, it was pretty warm. It was, yeah. 
Yeah. So, and I mean, you know, it's it's been the first time I think that we've had we, we've experienced a heat wave across the whole of Europe. So not just one country experiencing mega heat. So last year we had the wildfires in Greece. Yeah. So again, there were wildfires outside Athens, but at the same time, you had wildfires in Portugal along the west coast uh, of France. Uh, really terrifying, and in Spain as well. And the Spanish Prime Minister, when he visited um, one of the places on Thursday, I think it was, he he said that 500 people had died in Spain alone because of the heat. Um, you know, heat related, not because of the wildfires. But I thought that that's a big number. It really um, is, and it's quite a hard thing to quantify because there's so many secondary, tertiary effects due to heat and. All I know is, I mean, um, for me, it can affect my head. <laughs> it can affect, obviously, how I feel. I mean, I do love a blue sky, but but the weight of the heat can sometimes get to my head. Yeah, no, it was it was quite something on Wednesday night, wasn't it? Because it didn't cool down, so that's something yeah. we're not used to in Luxembourg. But <laughs> um, and of course, the climate uh, skepticists out, the uh, climate change deniers, um, saying that the uh, media and the press over-reported, which there is, I, I, I have a slight, uh, I think they have a slight point to it. Yeah. It is, it is reported as a catastrophic event. Well, that's, I agree with you there. I don't like when things are hyped up or catastrophized. Yes. But they were, they have been putting out maps, um, fake maps. I mean, uh, showing, uh, well, they're, they're fake because the information on them is fake, sort of showing uh, that some media were putting out maps of Europe with dark, dark red and uh, sort of saying that that was not right. And in fact, they had manipulated the, the climate maps themselves to say that the, oh. that climate change and the heat have, have been hyped and exaggerated. So the, the climate sceptics yes. were actually twiddling the maps. Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness, it's so hard to get a clearer picture sometimes. Fake news is Fake everywhere, news including everywhere. the weather. Oh my goodness, oh golly. Well, I mean, the trouble is it's very hard to know where to get the correct information from. So we always have to go to the best sources. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yes. So yes, I, I stick to Meteolux and they did a lot of alerts here in yeah. Luxembourg, um, also about ozone levels. And um, yes, but sometimes you do go out and you see, I've read, you know, it's an orange alert, it's a red alert and you go for a little walk in the shade and you think, well, it's, it's okay. It's fine, it? it's rather pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Just keep a cap on and keep yourself yeah, hydrated and all those usual things that we, and also take care of the animals. Do you know one thing that so, I saw one poor dog hopping along a footpath and not everyone understands, and now that I'm a dog owner, um, their paws, they don't wear shoes and they do, they can burn their little paws. Yeah, absolutely. It's easily done, isn't it? Very easily done. I have done. to say there was a really sad story. I don't know if you want even to hear really sad stories today, but um, I don't know who to feel sorry for the most. That in France today, um, a man left his baby in the car and forgot about it. A 14-month baby taking it to the creche. And left it in the car, and and um, I, you sort of think you you. I mean, obviously, you feel sorry for the baby. You feel sorry for the parents. I mean, oh, it's such a sad story. I don't know how you can forget that you've left your baby in the car. I, I also don't quite understand that. Even with the greatest fatigue a baby can bring, that's tragic. That's yeah. absolutely tragic. Well, moving from tragic to Boris. Yes, less tragic, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm listening to this really good uh, BBC series on Boris. I mean, he's one of those people in the world like Beyonce, where you just need the first name and that's that. <laughs> yes, it is annoying that he is known throughout the world and that it's, I mean, annoying as in, you know, he is such a personality that, as you say, just Boris is enough. And, yeah. and it was such a huge story um, when when he was finally pushed out. Um, so that but that we discussed last week. But this this week um, it was his sort of it's been his final week, really, before Parliament uh, recesses for the summer. And so he he took uh, Prime Minister's question time on, on Wednesday and there was quite a lot of speculation whether he would turn up or not. Oh, I think he'd always turn up for the final show. Yes, so he did. <laughs> and of course, he was quite funny. Mm. Um, but uh, 
well, he left the chamber, um, sort of thanking everyone, and uh, they got up and clapped, ex- with the exception of the former Prime Minister Theresa yes, May, yes. Who, who did not clap. She but, stood but kept her hands yes. together. <laughs> and he said, hasta la vista, baby, in a sort of such a showbiz way. Yeah. Uh, it made it shouldn't make me laugh, but it did make me laugh. Yeah, and he also did um, a sort of a, a mimicry of Sir Keir Starmer's flapping wooden hands as he's speaking. So he's a great showman. Yes. He's a great salesman um, for various things, but the detail uh, sometimes uh, forgoes him. Yes, and I think what's interesting is that he is trying to write a kind of legacy now. Um, you know, he's he's very much stressing that he, the, the achievements and the support he gave to Ukraine, that the, the, the vaccine rollout was very fast in the UK. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I think the general opinion is quite negative about him. And I think his legacy will not be great. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned that uh, Adam Bolton, who's a very well-known UK yeah. commentator, just tweeted, worst prime minister ever. And I think that's does sum it up for a lot of people. Yes, I I used to work with Adam Bolton, so I I, I remember him. Uh, he's, he's an interesting character himself, actually. <laughs> but let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, and the two candidates now fighting for the position is Liz Truss and former Chancellor Rishi Sunak. So uh, a very interesting couple of candidates, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing, isn't it? How uh, the of of all the candidates, actually, there there were three women to start yes. with, uh, two two men of colour, yeah. which is also it's very interesting for the Conservative Party. You yeah. don't necessarily expect yeah. it, but Rishi Sunak, of course, was the Chancellor and has been uh, all the way through the pandemic, and I think was very very successful and popular during the pandemic. Yeah, because there was a lot of help given to. Uh, individuals and businesses. Um, the furlough scheme was very, very successful. Um, and he probably was one of the main uh, reasons that Boris Johnson actually fell because he, he resigned. And once him, once he resigned and the health secretary resigned, they, there was not really much the support scope. Is going, yeah. um, however, it slowly appears that he's not the favourite the Liz Truss, who is still the foreign secretary under Boris Johnson, um, is is really becoming. I think she's the the hot tip. Um, it depends who the Conservative Party yes. will vote for. Yes, because of course, of course that's, course, you're quite right. This is the problem. It's who votes for them, actually, which is not a representation of. Uh, Britain itself. But we will see in due course. Now, moving on to a more European story, the gas crisis. And this is a really dreadful situation for so many people. Nord Stream, that gas pipeline, it's come back, came back this week. Uh, However, it's come back uh, with some notifications for various countries. Tell us more. Yes. So um, it there was so much nervousness, uh, you know, especially in Germany, which is obviously 100% reliant on, on gas supplies from Russia. It came on apparently at around a sort of 30% capacity, which is not enough. And the day before, the EU has urged all European countries to cut their gas by 15%. Um, they said that mainly it needs to be businesses, uh, not private households. But I think a concerted effort will be made. And they also have said that if the gas does get cut, then they will not just urge EU countries to cut their gas, uh, to reduce their demand, but it will be mandatory. Um, I mean, I think all European countries are very nervous about the winter. Um, so even uh, in Luxembourg, you know, things have gone out saying we've got plans in place. No one is going to be cold in their homes. Um, I, don't I know wonder how what much those we plans it. are. What are the plans? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes, it was very vague. It's I hard have to, to visualise it right now because it's so warm right yes. now. But yes. winter is not like right now. So it's it's sort of hard to put in place those. It's almost like how to pack a suitcase for skiing with temperatures like we have yes. at the moment. It, it is. You're absolutely right. That's a very good analogy. But it's I, it is going to be Europe's big crisis moment, I think. And the fact that Russia can politicise uh, the gas supplies and w- they have weaponized gas. Um, so, you know, we're totally dependent on what they do. So everyone's scrambling 
to find other suppliers. Um, I mean, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU uh, commissioner, she was in Azerbaijan this week um, and has is get you know has organised supplies from there, but it's not near enough. You saw Biden. Um, well, sorry, that's not Europe, but uh, he was touring the Middle East. Uh, you know, we're cozying back up to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Oh, Lordy. Well, we'll follow that, I'm sure, for months to come, no doubt. Uh, Now, moving to something completely different, uh, a great visual in my mind right now, Brad Pitt in a skirt. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, so Brad Pitt rocks a skirt. It's been it's been the big news. He's in Europe promoting his latest film, Bullet Train. And Brad Pitt, you know, well, he's handsome. He is 58, but uh, he's... He, yeah, he wore a skirt to the Berlin premiere uh, with some boots and um, looks very cool in it. And um, everyone was has been asking him, you know, what's the statement? Why are you doing this? And he was like, it's hot. It's just about the breeze, which I like because he is making a statement, as you said earlier. But he's not pushing it. Yeah, and he's, he's doing it uh sort of quietly. He's doing it without the words, just the pictures. Yes, exactly. I mean, in the press conference, he was wearing an entirely pink uh, suit as well. So I think he's just, yeah, whatever statement it is he's making. But it's interesting that celebrities now, like Harry Styles, it's it's the same. He's, part of his popularity, I think, is the way he dresses. Um, you know, you can whether men are saying that they can embrace their feminine side or it's gender fluidity, whatever, yeah. it's it's a bit more open. And I, like my daughter will sort of say, oh, it's all very new. And I'm like, well, not really, because if you think of David Bowie yeah. and people like that, yeah. we, we had all that in the 80s. It's true. And the flower power in the 70s yeah. and all of this. So it's lovely, but I do think there'll be a real change in men's fashion in coming decades. Right. To a more fluid, yeah, fluid statement. Let's say it might even become more unisex across the board of uh, everything. Like you say, gender fluidity, and that will uh, seep through into clothing and makeup and hairstyles. And uh, well, that's more fun, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, a lot more options there for everybody. Yes. <laughs> and uh, well, actually, just the other interesting thing about that is uh, Harry Styles. You can now study him. Oh, yes, there's a university course in Texas, obviously. And I think it was called European Pop Culture, Celebrity Identity. I don't know. How how difficult is this going to be? Yeah, I don't know. But um, what's interesting is that repeatedly through recent history, I can think London did produce some really good, iconic fashion statement people. Yeah, yes, absolutely. This is another one. Yeah, really. No, I, I think. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm quite a fan of the way he dresses and uh, the way he looks. I think it's uh, yeah, it's I, just it's out fun. There. It's, it's out there. confident. Yeah. It's uh, boundary leading. It's it's changing the way people can view themselves. Yes, and it's it's not just anti masculinity. No, it's just opening up to other possibilities. <laughs> the Tour de France. Well, we all love a bicycle here in Luxembourg uh, in whatever speed we take it. <laughs> Tell us about the Tour de France. Well, um, it's coming to an end this weekend with the traditional cycle up to the Champs-Élysées. Um, and uh, I'm no expert in cycling whatsoever. <laughs> but what has struck me is, of course, this has been taking place during a heat, a wave. heat wave. I mean, it, unbelievable. It's obviously a, a f- feat beyond, I can't imagine, to cycle up a, an alpine hill, a mountain. I can't imagine it either, no. <laughs> even without the heat. Yeah. <laughs> but they said that the roads really were about 60 degrees and it was about 45 degrees on the bikes. They were having to throw thousands of litres of water on the roads just to stop them from, from melting and buckling, apparently. Um, and even uh, the Slovenian rider, Pogacar, said, I don't feel very well. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, there could be multiple reasons for that. <laughs> I mean, what an achievement just to get yeah. through, let alone to be leading at the front. And yeah. Because again, you know, when they are practising over and over again, hour by hour, um, they probably don't practice in that temperature. But from now on, perhaps they will go somewhere warm and practice in these temperatures to uh, just be able to perform at such heat. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm I'm just amazed. Every day I've been uh, looking at the the some of the live stream and just thinking it's 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 beyond me how you can do it. There's me on my little electric bike with a bit of help going up <laughs> even up the hill from the Moselle. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, I remember once standing in line somewhere. I think it was somewhere in France. <laughs> Tour de France. Yeah, it probably was somewhere in France. And um yeah, we were out to watch the Tour de France pass by and we saw them, but they went by so fast. <laughs> it's like, yeah. turn it's your whoosh, head. Yeah, yes. and they're gone. I mean, it's extraordinary to see the speed at which they go. Yeah, no, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? And you've got the, all the cars and the support things, yeah. uh, uh, the ambulances yeah. and the police for hours. And then they come by. And it, as you say, it's a, it's bat- whoosh. in a flash. Yeah, it's a flash. Yeah. And it, what's amazing is how popular it is in Luxembourg. I mean, yeah. they are obsessed with the Tour de France here. Yeah, and actually, I had to be up and out early, as you do. Um, I'd love to know who you passed by in the morning. Mine wasn't as early as yours. It was just about 7am or something. Um, but on the roads, there are lots of people either cycling or jogging in the mornings in this heat, actually. So I'm very impressed by those cycling and jogging in the mornings. Yeah, no, it's amazing. You- and the Luxembourgish cyclist, uh, Bob Jungel. Yes. He's he's up there. You know, he's in 13th place currently. Um which, again, I you know, it's a small country, but yeah. cycling is such a culture here. It I is. suppose also with Ant the Schlecks, you know, and yeah. Schleck and everything, um, that uh, it's so popular. As you say, you see cyclists, there's the Tour de Luxembourg as yeah. well. There's now going to be a women's uh, cycle oh. race, I saw. Yeah, oh, that, it's, it's that, the national sport and it, oh, it never ceases to amaze me because it's so hard. Yeah, I can imagine I will not be entering the Luxembourg Tour. <laughs> no, sadly, yeah, <clears throat> I, I actually I need to get my bike fixed. Anyway, different story entirely. Now, we want to, we have a few more minutes left. So let's move on to some other news. So we've got the uh, snap elections in Italy Yes, which actually for Europe is is quite important. I mean, Italy is always politically volatile, but uh, Mario Draghi, who had been the ECB president, uh, Super Mario, was kind (laughs) of uh, helicoptered in to rescue Italy. Um, uh, But he has resigned. He resigned yesterday. He's lost the support of his coalition, which was a very difficult coalition because he's got uh, Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia. He's got the very right wing five star um, uh, party led by uh, Salvini. And I suppose they just can never agree to anything. And um, I liked it because he tried to resign at the beginning of the week and the president, uh, Mattarella, just said no. No, you can't resign. We need you to carry on. He went back to Parliament. He tried to get some sort of consensus and he couldn't do it. So there will be elections in September. Yeah, it's so sad, but Italy seems to just carry on. It seems sort of ungovernable, but yet it just carries on and people... (laughs) Is that me? It must have been. Oh, sugar, let me just... Um, No, my phone's on silent. Oh, doesn't matter. Anyway, I don't... Oh, maybe it's my computer. Sorry, uh, let me just... Um, yeah, Italy seems to be slightly ungovernable somehow. Um, and I don't know why it is because it's such a fabulous country and it just carries on regardless. It carries on. I remember there was a huge crisis. I can't remember what what crisis it was, but I, I and my parents were currently living in Italy at that time. And I remember turning up going, oh, gosh, you know, how is it? And they were like, well, people are worried about the, uh, the wine harvest. But... <laughs> Food, food is always, um, food will get them through. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure it's different in the cities and I'm sure it's different when you're Italian, but it did really make me laugh. That because as funny. you say, when you go to Italy as a visitor or living there for a bit, it just always seems fantastic. Yeah. And there are people out spending money. The restaurants seem full. Crisis, what crisis? I don't know. I, I Yeah, I, I, it's extraordinary. It's, uh, yeah, I don't quite know how they manage that. Another thing that happened this week, which... Um, caught me by surprise Ivana Trump yeah yeah, it was surprising actually she was only 73 which is no age and um, she she felt it seems that she fell down the stairs actually Um, so she was found in her flat uh, dead and obviously it's just taken the Trump family by huge surprise so there was obviously no underlying illnesses that I know of so her funeral took place yesterday um, and so there's been quite a look at her life and the Trumps generally. Um, and um, I mean, they they were the Bling family, I've decided. In the 80s and 90s, yeah. they really were 
epitomise that wealthy New York blingy family. Um, where- yeah, I looked back at some of the photos and the outfits and the colours yes. and the material and the hair. hair. The big, <laughs> blonde, curly yeah, hair. Yeah. And you forget that she was apparently an Olympic uh, skier, skier, wasn't yeah. she? I did look back at her life a bit as well after this news. And it struck me doubly because very sadly, my dear neighbour also died this week and he had also fallen. And then I went into researching how falls past the age of, I think it's 65, are the greatest cause of death in older people. Oh, really? Yeah. Gosh, yes, I'm not surprised. And so two people I know this week have died as a result of falling downstairs. Oh, that's sad. His wasn't. Yeah. Instant. He was in hospital for two weeks, but um, still a shock because there were no underlying other reasons, you know. Yeah, so no, it's terribly a, sad. Yeah. No, that is sad, I have to say. But um, and quite something to see Trump, you know, with the children, their partners, uh, yeah. all in, in New York. And sort of for once, he thought maybe he, he actually cared about something because he seems to have been very fond of her because they were married for quite a long time, weren't they? And turns out from what I've read that he did look to her for advice yes. when he was uh, campaigning and through some of his decisions. If only he'd taken her advice, uh, we found out uh, today, well, yesterday in America, that of course, uh, during the riots on, on the Capitol, he was just sitting in his private dining room in the White House, watching the riot happen and did nothing, called no one. And apparently his family were in there with them. I mean, this is now officially, you know, it's in, it was in the hearings at the committee hearings yesterday. Um, they were begging him to call, to call the, you know, to speak to the rioters, call them off. And he just watched it. He was so determined to delay or to cancel Joe Biden's uh, presidential victory in the elections. Um, Yeah, maybe he could have done with Ivana's advice. Maybe he would have ignored it. There's a certain mindset in some leaders that I can't quite comprehend. My mind just cannot reach the the levels of their decision making <laughs> or lack of decision making. Uh, yeah, my, my my mind just doesn't comprehend some of their choices. Uh, anyway, thank goodness he's no longer. Sorry, I shouldn't. I should be impartial. I should be impartial. I should. <laughs> well, I think hearing things like that when you know, I mean, genuinely, people died and were injured. Yeah. Um. You 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 you're allowed to say things. <laughs> Well, and I think we also had a drop of news in today. Yes, I thought this was a very interesting story, a bit difficult to digest for the news. But uh, Luxembourg um, uh, have are naming a new street, the one that goes up to Hesperange, the N Hesperange, sorry, uh, the N three, and they are naming it Boulevard de Kiev, which is. Um, controversial, I think, or a lot of English speakers and Ukrainian speakers think, because the um, pronunciation made by Ukrainians is Kiev. And we've spent a long time in the English uh, speaking news world uh, learning to pronounce it. Kiev also spelled K-Y-I-V. But uh, Luxembourg said, no, they are going with the French spelling, which of course, simultaneously is the Russian spelling. And um, pronunciation. And pronunciation. So they meant it as a sign of solidarity to the Ukraine capital city. Um, But I wonder whether it's going to backfire on them. Um, They wrote back to RTL uh, today, actually, who who questioned it and said they would put the Ukrainian spelling at a later date underneath. You know how like Yes, uh, we know we have the Luxembourgish here. and yes. the uh, French here. Yes, but, but that they they just was absolutely specific about it, saying, "But all our road names are the French spelling and the Luxembourgish." I wonder what it will be in Luxembourgish then. Like, what is it in German? Oh, I should know that. I don't know. I we, don't know actually. I'm sure that's your homework for this. That's week. my homework for this weekend. <laughs> yes, a very good question. But it's well, a, it's quite a, yeah, it's quite an interesting story because you, everybody always likes stories that when there were good intentions, but it yeah. didn't quite work out. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of a lot of decisions in life, <laughs> both family and political. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and family is political sometimes. Well, there we go. Sasha, as always, a joy to have you on the show with a reflection of the week's news uh, or the sideline stories of the news or the main news itself. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. Thank you. Thank you have so much. Thank you, Sasha. The Lisa Burke Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lisa Burke Show. Well, I'm delighted to introduce my two guests to you this morning. I've got Nettie Tines and Giuseppe Castellanetta, who are going to talk to me about Luxy Lux and Miss Tourism. To tell you a little bit more about Nettie Tines, she's a communications expert and co-founded Mediation in 1991, a communications company, but also in 2002 launched Mediation Field Marketing, in 2008 became a shareholder holder of 27 names, which was the first European events agency. And in 2022, this year is the launch of Luxilux, a city app helping local and foreign tourists to discover Luxembourg in a fun way. Giuseppe Castellaneta is the founder of Miss Tourism Luxembourg. He is a specialist in lifestyle and tourism and has spent a career doing this and launched Miss Tourism just last year. So welcome to you both. It's always wonderful to have you here and lovely to see you again, Nettie. Lovely to meet you, Giuseppe. So I'm going to start with you, Nettie, to tell us more about Luxembourg. What is it and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, as our main business is organizing events and during the pandemic, we had a lot of time and uh, we had good relations with the hotels where we organized team buildings uh, for our clients. And then the hotels came up to us and said, well, can't you do anything for us just to make our hotel uh, more attractive? And then we thought, because we are used of doing events and it was always people who are involved, people connecting with people. And then we had the idea, it's not revolutionary idea, uh, it exists uh, almost in each city, to work with an app and and to do treasure hunts with the app so that uh, tourists can discover a city whenever they want, where they want, that they can uh, discover exciting panoramic views, that they discover the restaurants um, and so on. And they, not just tourists, but also local people too. Of, <laughs> of course, also local people. And then we thought, well, what is interesting when you are coming to a city? You want to discover nice places, you want to have nice views, you want to do nice pics. And uh, based on our knowledge of the team building events, we built treasure hunts or scavenger hunts. Sometimes you don't find a treasure, uh, it's just uh, a scavenger hunt. And we included also vouchers in the scavenger hunt or the treasure hunt uh, with local restaurants or local businesses. So it really incorporates both sides, really. And yeah. it's a win-win all the way around. Exactly. And uh, the stories are based on legends. And we have this Luxy Lux, which is a mascot, uh, I would say, with the name of the website and who guides uh, through the treasure hunts or the scavenger hunts. So people can just download the app? People have to uh, go on our website, luxilux.ielu. Then they look for the treasure hunt they want to do. We have three for the moment, one in Schifflange, one in Esch sur alzette and one uh, in Luxembourg. The, the one in Schifflange will only be launched uh, next week, uh, so it will be fresh next week. Then they pay, they download the app and then they are ready to go and they can do it whenever they want at uh, any time they decide to do it. Yeah. And what age range would it appeal to? Listen, last Saturday uh, we did a kickoff and then there were this mistourism, but we had also uh, a mother with his child. So I think it's for everybody who wants uh, to discover the city in an exciting way and who doesn't want to hire a tourist guide, for example, and who wants to have background information. So I think um, it's adapted for everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking about it, for creating it and allowing us all to discover parts of the city or Chiflange or Esch sur Alzette in a different way, locals as well as tourists. Now, uh, you gave us a very nice link there to Miss Tourism and I know you sit on the board of Miss Tourism as well. So turning to you, Giuseppe, I would like you to tell us about the idea behind Miss Tourism, which was your idea. Hi, the idea coming some years ago. I work long time in tourism before and I like this mixing uh, event, lifestyle and tourism. 
and uh, I put everything in one and uh, voila, I have this idea to do the event Mysteries in Luxembourg. And it does exist in some other countries? Yes, it's existing in some countries, yeah. And thinking about uh, Mysteries Luxembourg, what are the criteria for somebody to apply? And I believe there's one week left. People can apply for one more week. Who can apply? Yes, the future candidate can uh, write in uh, miss at mistourismluxembourg.lu. The age is uh, from 18 to 35 mm-hmm. and minimum 1 meter 65. And she can have uh, different nationality or Luxembourgish. So it's a slight sort of model thing, but not quite. What are the elements? What's the personality of Miss Tourism? What are you looking for? We look the beauty and we look at the intelligence of the candidate. So it's sort of like a Miss Luxembourg. It's sort of like a, yeah, okay, it's a beauty stroke intelligence competition. Yes, yes. The woman must have a little cultural basic and uh, know a little Luxembourg. And, uh, voilà. and what do you want them to do during the year which they represent Luxembourg as Miss Tourism? What would you like them to do to promote the country? Yes, in October, we're speaking with the Ministry of Tourism for a future collaboration for 2023. And uh, we need to promote hotels, the countries, cultural, the Luxembourg gastronomy and the Made in Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. And Nettie, tell us about your experience with Giuseppe working as part of the board for Miss Tourism. Yeah, I found it very, very interesting to be in the jury of uh, the misses who introduced uh, themselves. There was a complete variety of girls who presented Luxembourgish natives, but also from different nationalities. There was one girl, I think she was coming from Iran and she spoke six languages and she learned Luxembourgish in uh, six months. It was incredible. And uh, we as a jury, what we were looking for is... How will they represent the country? Um, I think, of course, they have to be beautiful because uh, they are a miss. But the most important thing uh, is how do they behave in front of the media? Uh, How can they uh, promote uh, the country? What is their interest um, in uh, putting their candidature um, for Miss Tourism? And Giuseppe is really doing a great, great uh, work with the the girls. That's uh, why it's not so important that they have a huge tourism background. He is now working for two months with the girls just to show them the uh, around the country, to show them uh, the most important uh, locations in Luxembourg, but also to catwalk, uh, to pose in front of the camera, to speak to the media. And that's where we came in because we developed this app and we thought, oh, that's a nice way just to show Luxembourg in a more fun way just going around and saying, here's the cathedral, it was con- uh, built in this year, and so on, and so on. That's uh, the job Giuseppe uh, is doing now for two two months. And yeah, he's working night and day just to make them fit uh, for the competition. <laughs> and uh, every Sundays are training. Yeah. We, we, uh, we have three choreographs. Yeah. Wow. Every Sunday, yeah. yeah. Choreographers to show them how to walk. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. I'd like to meet one of those choreographers yeah. to learn how should I walk. <laughs> That's yeah. quite fun. Oh my goodness. So you see a whole range of ladies aged between 18 and 35. Just to call out for anybody else if they want to apply, they can apply with the, we'll put the link in the notes, of course. And just uh, reflecting on your career in tourism, Giuseppe, how have you seen tourism change during COVID times and to today, because I think the way in which we think about tourism has really altered for quite a few people. Yes, um, it's changing very much in the last years, the tourism in Luxembourg. The country are more modern and uh, we have more proposition uh, for the tourists and uh, we have more hotels. Uh, We have all these international categories, uh, Sofitel and company, uh, installed in Luxembourg. We have very much to promote now to Luxembourg. Yeah, I think it's true. In the last few years since I've been living here, I've seen quite a, a large change as well. And I feel most people living here this year in particular sort of post-COVID, not quite post-COVID. Um, we've just seen so many concerts and events going on. And of course, we've got Esch sur Alzette being, well, not just Esch, but Esch 2022, uh, European Capital of Culture. So there's a lot going on at the moment. I'm sure you see that in your work as well, Nettie. 
Yes, uh, for sure. I saw really a big step ahead when Luxembourg was the first time European city of culture in 1995. And then the country invested a lot in infrastructures, uh, in cultural infrastructures, but also uh, there were more hotels coming. And uh, slowly, uh, where we were a lot behind, was uh, all the the access to the country, for example, the flights. Uh, and then uh, now there was a change also in making Luxembourg more accept, uh, accessible with flights and also with, by train and uh, by buses. So, of course, yeah, I think we are a very, very tiny country, but we are in the center of Europe. And um, I think we have the best uh, from the countryside, but also uh, from the city. Uh, it's a very international, multicultural city uh, with so many different cultures. When you go in the street, you hear uh, English, Italian, Spanish, all the languages. And I think that's what makes Luxembourg really attractive. Yeah, it's a very easy place to travel around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we are. We, um, what Natisha she say, um, we have a very good situation in Europe. We are in Central. We have all the commodity with the train, with the plane coming from Frankfurt, from Paris, from Milan, and etc. Uh, and uh, I think in the next years, uh, Luxembourg are more, more, more developed for the tourism. Now people have choice to come weekend or for coming seven days. You know, you have people have more to do now. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Well, there's a call out for our international listeners. If anybody wants to travel through Luxembourg and make a stop here for a weekend or a week, even there's plenty to do. And now with the Luxilux app as well, there's plenty to do there as well in those three cities. And um, just one final call out for anybody who wants to apply for Miss Tourism. One more week left and we will link to that on the article attached. Thank you both so much for your time and coming into RTL today. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. So there we have it for another week. A big thanks to all my guests, Sadhguru, Sasha, Netty and Giuseppe. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on the podcast if you're listening to this as a podcast when you subscribe to the show as it really does help for the show to be found by others. You can always write to me on social media with ideas for future shows and over the next few weeks of summer I'll be sharing some previous shows in case you miss them first time round. Meanwhile, I wish you all a wonderful, restful summer. Mm-hmm.